Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the most effective preachers to ever stand behind the sacred desk was Dr. Lawrence B. Hicks. He passed away in 1975 at the relatively young age of 62, but his ministry lives on through the avenue of convention pulpit. This sermon was preached many years ago at the old Cato Tabernacle in Indianapolis, and it's titled, The Second Coming. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. Pray thee tonight, our Father, to give the very message thou hast laid on thy servant's heart. In these trying, bitter days, let thy will be done, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We begin our Bible reading tonight, and I felt the Lord laid it on my heart to give you a Bible reading tonight. We begin our Bible reading tonight in the Song of Solomon, the fifth chapter, and the second verse. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with the dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door. My bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved. My hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved hath withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I saw him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Turning now to St. Matthew's uh, Gospel, uh, the 24th chapter, we begin our reading in the third verse. And as he sat up on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. 
Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. <clears throat> and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Beginning again in the 24th chapter of Matthew in the 32nd verse. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branches yet tender and put it forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Then going to the 25th chapter of Matthew, the first verse. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. The wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourself. <clears throat> and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went it with him into the marriage, and the door was shut. What a lamentable scene that's going to be. Turn you to Luke, the 17th chapter, and the 22nd verse. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and shall not see it. And they shall say unto you, See here or see there, go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part unto heaven shineth unto the other part unto heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things, and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also was it in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 
In that day he which shall be up on the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. He that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Turning a bit further into St. Luke, the 24th chapter, the 21st chapter and the 20th verse, and when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed about with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them not, <coughs> and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, and all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon these people. They shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in their cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. Blessed be God. <laughs> Turning into the 14th chapter of John, and the first three verses, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Glory be to God. <clears throat> First chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly into heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing steadfastly into heaven? For this same Jesus, which is taken up from you, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him taken from you into heaven. Turning over into 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and the 51st verse, Paul gets on tiptoes and inspired rhetoric and said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God which giveth us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Glory be to God. 
turning into 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter and the 14th verse, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and seasons, brethren, we have no need that we should write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not of the darkness, but of the de- that the day should overtake you as a thief. But ye are children of the light, and the children of the day, and not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Turning into Second Thessalonians now, the second chapter and the second verse, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, and is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Turning to First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heeds to seducing spirits and doctrines suggested by demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them that believe and know the truth. Then turning into 2 Timothy, the third chapter, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heavy, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Oh, beloved, the warnings are abundant in the Word of God. Turning just a bit further now into the book of James, the fifth chapter, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasures together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborer who hath reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud crieth. And the cries of them that have reaped have entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Then turning for one last reference further down into the New Testament, we turn to Second Peter, I believe it is. And in Second Peter, we find these words that are written in the third chapter, where he says uh, uh, words like these, speaking there of in the last days, 
there would arise scoffers who would scoff at the presence of his coming and say, where are the promises of his coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from creation. So I've given that long Bible reading to lay a brief background for what I believe the Lord laid on my heart tonight. I felt urged and called upon and pressured this afternoon while Dr. Church was preaching and through the dinner at the dinner table and after I went to my room and sat down with my Bible that God wanted me to bring you a message on the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, every convention and every camp meeting that I preach in these days and every assembly, I try to get round to it once each time preaching on the second coming of Jesus. For these are the days when our minds need to be stirred. These are the days when the midnight cry needs to go out. These are the days when we need to hear again and again what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. <coughs> we we need to be admonished, let that day come upon us unawares and catch us. We need to be ready for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then reason number two that I feel urged to preach on the second coming is what happened to me when I got sanctified. The first sensation I had after I got the blessing was the Lord's coming back and I'd be glad to see him. I've laid my paintbrush down and crawled down off a ladder more times than one and gone out in the woods somewhere or gone off by myself and looked up and had a shout and spell over the thought Jesus was coming back and I might be alive and see him when he did come back. I remember back in other days when the doctrine of the second coming terrified my soul. But thank God since I really got sanctified and got into the holiness movement, I've had my head tilted back a little bit. I've had my chin in the air, and I've been looking up for the glorious appearing of the Lord and Savior, the Christ of all, Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I'd like to lay on your hearts tonight, under the unction I trust of the Holy Ghost, is the surety of the doctrine of the second coming. It is not a man-made doctrine. It is not the doctrine of a sect or an ism. It is a great ecumenical doctrine of the church. It reaches back to the disciples. It spans back beyond the days of Malachi. And the Old Testament prophets talked about it in language that rang with poetry and that dazzled and danced in every tear. And they told about a time when God would come back to the earth a second time in the presence of his son and let him sit in the throne of David his father and rule the world in righteousness and in judgment. In fact, at least 318 verses in the Bible bear directly on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul mentions it 50 times in his writings. Peter and James and John have a lot to say about it. Luke, the beloved physician, had a lot to say about it. In fact, one of the outstanding doctrines of the New Testament and the Old is the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. Not only did the Old Testament prophets preach it and the New Testament apostles preach it, but the holy angels of heaven taught it. For on the day of the ascension, while they stood looking up into the great void of the behind, after the blessed Redeemer had blessed them and risen defying gravitation into the air, and as he paled out into the outer marine of a distant sky, great angels floated down dressed in white uniforms and said, Gee, men of Galilee, what are you hanging around here for as if transfixed to this place and gaze ye into heaven? For that same Jesus that you see taken from you in the clouds of this day will come back in like manner as ye have seen him go into heavens at 111 and then Jesus himself has to put the last capstone on the column to lay the last uh, keystone in the niche to put the last uh, sheep on the stack 
He himself taught it. And that glorious Passover night, as he walked from an upper room down toward Gethsemane's garden in the bright moonlight of that Passover day, while the smell of cedar fires drifted and commingled with the fogs of Haman that swung down across the Kedron Valley, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Look up to me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to leave you, but if I go, I'm going to lay the foundations for a mini mansion dwelling. And when I've done with it, I'm going to come back again and take you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And when he had walked with them a little further, in the 17th chapter of John, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son with the glory which he had with thee before the world was. And as he prayed that down, he said, Father, I want you to sanctify them. And for this cause, I want to sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified in one. They fell, beheld me in their humiliation, he meant. But I want them to see me in the glory. They're going to see my back lacerated. But I want them to see me wearing the purple of my father's kingdom. They're going to see a crown of thorns on me. But I want them to be there that day when they bring forth the royal diadem to crown me king of kings. That they may behold me in my glory. Blessed be God. And that writer, after he had written his books in the New Testament, got blessed and added in there in the third chapter of First John and the second verse that when he came back, we'd be like him. And so, beloved, I believe the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord and Savior is a biblical doctrine. Old and New Testament can bear it out alike. Not only that, but it has been the comfort. It has been the staff to the beggar. It has been the shekinah of the saint. It has been the blessed hope of the ages. It has been the delight of men. It's placed a hallelujah on many a dying lip. It's brightened many a beclouded face to a shine. Until when they buried their dead in the ancient catacombs, they'd say, Goodbye, darling, I'll be with you in the morning. And when the wild beast growled and tore in the arena of Nero, and Rome was in its awful persecution, and the blood ran out, they said, Goodbye, darling, I'll meet you in the morning. For the Savior's coming back again. Hallelujah. Be to God forever. For the hope of the second coming, men have endured the tooth of the lion. They've endured the flame of the stake. They've endured the rack. They've endured the inquisition. They've crossed the oceans. They've slept in the open. They've gone and given their lives and breached their bones on a desert way because they said he's coming back in the morning and the eastern gates will swing open wide and up on the jewel stairway we'll climb higher than the clouds someday and we'll mock him as we look down on them and we'll get ready for that grand and glorious day. He's coming back. Hallelujah. He's coming back. The sureness of the doctrine of the second coming. Now might we drop back down and take another run and go at it. Second thing I call your attention to, the scheme, the plan, the rhythm, the rhyme of the second coming. Now as a little boy, I believe the world had come to an end and there'd be a final judgment. And then it'd all be over except heaven for the blessed and hell for the damned. But when I got saved and got sanctified and began to read my Bible, I found that an orderly God had planned it on a far different scheme. And that the thing wasn't going to work with one big coming of the Lord and one final judgment. But it is going to work on a glorious scheme. Now you listen and let's go through that together. Just to get our feet down and our foundations laid and then get up on top of that and get blessed again in a few minutes. 
Now, the first thing that's going to take place when he comes back is going to be a two-party a, a, a two affair. We call it in theology the rapture. What do we mean by the rapture? We mean there's going to come a time, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, when the Lord Jesus Christ will descend in the upper air. He'll not be visible from this earth. He'll not be seen by anybody down here. But somewhere up there in the upper air, he'll pause. And with the voice of an archangel and the blaring trump of God, he'll sound out a reverie note. And it'll drift down in the silent bivouac of the dead till every redeemed saint of every age will bestir himself, pull aside the shroud, lay aside the dust-encased garments, and streak out of that to be placed around his shoulders, a garment given by an angel already prepared, and he'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And just as quickly as that's done, this crowd that are still living and breathing that have hung around mourners' benches until they got saved and then wore a trail to the altar and they got sanctified holy, this crowd, you know, will feel a tingling sensation up and down their spine and the hair will rise on their head and their feet will get light and they'll shed off the remnants of this whole world and they'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and so shall they ever be with the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. Be the God. Would you indulge me a little more before I pass on? <laughs> I tell you, these things are getting big. Would you indulge me a little bit more? There's a lovely example back in the original Greek there of that trump of God and that voice of the archangel. They tell me in classical Greek that's the language borrowed there from the classical writers and the voice of the archangel is an maritime language. An old skipper has caught up in the scroll crow's nest that morning himself to overlook the horizons around his ship. He's calling down to the helmsman, telling him what he sees. And all at once he cries out, Land ho! And every sailor leaps into the rigger and to furl the sails in. And you know, when old Zion's coming in, he's going to come down in the upper air and cry out, I've got the bride ready for you. And we'll spring into the rigger at once and be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. Be to God. The sound of the trumpet is another one barred from classical Greek when the Greek hunter had been out chasing the wild boars around over the Macedonian hills. And along about even time, he said, My hounds are so tired, I'm going to blow them back in. And he lift up his bugle horn and sound the blast. And the hounds would come in with saliva dripping from their tongues, so tired they couldn't hardly walk. And he'd pat them on the head and give them a choice morsel of meat and let them lie down in the kennels. And when we fought the devil and done everything we can do, he's going to say they've had it hard enough. If they're going down to the sun, give them a golden trumpet and I'll sound a bugle note. And the hounds will come in and gather around. And there'll be a time of rejoicing and a feeling of rapture up in the sky. God forever. So a two-part affair, the rapture. The dead in Christ will be raised first, and then the 17th verse said, We that are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the air, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. <clears throat> then the second thing that will take place is what theologians call the tribulation. Why, there will break on this earth when the last redeemed saint has been called out, the most dreadful time ever known by man. If you'd like to read it in your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 6 and read through chapter 19, and you'll get a picture there divided into three sets of sevens, seven vials, and then then offer seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and seven vials of God's eternal wrath that is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting, hell-bound, damned world. 
Israel that have chosen the Antichrist instead of the real Christ, that have chosen to be atheists instead of God-fearing and God-serving men? If you challenge me with a question, are we in the tribulation? I answer you an emphatic, no, we are not in the tribulation. A lot of folk have drawn pictures like that and had everything strung out back across there and have made everybody the Antichrist from the Pope of Rome down through Napoleon to Hitler and Mussolini and Joe Stalin and everybody else. He hasn't appeared and been revealed yet. We are not in the tribulation yet, thank God. And I'm a heavily happy to tell you tonight, I don't believe those of us that are blood-washed and blood-sanctified and blood-hallowed and blood-fought will ever be in the tribulation. Get around the in a few minutes. Then the third thing, after the rapture, after the seven-year tribulation period, there is going to occur what theologians call the revelation. Then he's coming down with his saints, and every eye shall behold him, and all kindred of the earth shall wail because of him, and they'll look upon him whom they have pierced, and there'll be a time of wailing because he'll come down visibly then. And then, beloved, along about that time, a great affair is going to take place. I get blessed every time I read it in the book of Revelation, the 20th chapter, how God said to one of his big angels, didn't even dirty his hands up, said, go down and lay hold on that old deceiver of the brethren. Lay hold on that old dragon. Lay hold on that old serpent. Lay hold on old Satan. Lay hold on that old arch fiend. Lay hold on that old thief. Lay hold upon that old cre creature, that evil one. And that angel will float, float down and collar the devil and chain him with a great chain and drop him in a hole that doesn't have a bottom to it and lay a rock on top of it and walk off and forget where it dropped him for 1,000 years. Hallelujah. Be to God forever. Talk about how big the devil is. God just can send one angel down and take care of the devil. And in the book of St. Matthew and Luke, we are told there are 12 legions of those big angels that could draw their swords and come down at any time. Hallelujah be to God forever. Then there's going to break on this earth what has been described in the 11th chapter of Isaiah and the 35th chapter of Isaiah as the millennium. Or oh, somebody said the word millennium does not appear in the Bible. Granted, it does not. The word millennium comes from two Latin words, Billy meaning a thousand, and a meaning year, and it means a thousand years. But if you'll turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter, and in the first seven verses, it's mentioned six times, and any time the Holy Ghost would put that much material in that many verses, it's a doctrine not to be sneered at, but a doctrine to believe a thousand year reign is going to take place. Now, I'm not going to preach on the millennium. A lot of you folk may not believe there is going to be such a thing. But all I want you to do is read your Bible, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, and those things they've talked about back there have never taken place on this earth yet. They've got to take place somewhere else, and they aren't to take place in heaven. The Bible said they'd take place here on this earth. And a fellow said to a friend of mine, you can't even prove out of the Bible that the Lord's feet are ever going to touch this earth again. My friend was running a big bookstore, and the man said, if you can prove his feet will ever touch this world again, I'll buy the best Bible in this store. My friend said, I'm going to get my best Bible and read it to you out of that Bible from fixing to sell it to you.
As we come down closer and closer toward the vortex of the awful whirlpool, they're getting more bloody. <clears throat> they're getting more destructive. Drop back in Caesar's day, comparatively few were killed. Come on down to the Napoleonic Wars, a few more were killed. Come down to the American Civil War, and you find four million killed. Come down to 1898 when the Gatlin gun was invented, and you find in a few days men moon being mowed down like straw in a wheat field. Come down to 1914 to 1918 when the mass German army, uh, driving on the psychology and philosophy of mass attack, poured through Belgium and down through France. Look at Verdun, look at Bellow Woods, look at Chalapiri, look at those other places. Men's bodies piled ten feet high, millions killed in four short years. Come with me back to 1940 when Hitler's blitzkrieg was running in high gear. Look at him plunge into hapless Poland. Look at him swirl down through hapless Belgium and France. Look at London under a rain of fire bombs. Look at Coventry all but wiped off the map. Then look at America's might rise up and England's and look at Germany as it crumbles beneath the blockbusters and nobody's yet ever counted the dead that ran into the millions and millions and millions. Then, beloved, with what we have now, hydrogen bombs atomic bombs and uh, bacteriological warfare and poisonous gas that's pit up that it'll wipe the whole country out overnight. Nobody knows what could happen. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. In spite of all the organizations for peace, and I guess we're for them all, I know I am, God help us to do anything that'll hold this thing off a little while longer. <clears throat> I'm not criticizing the United Nations tonight. I'm not in international politics tonight. I've heard Mr. Eisenhower talked about and criticized. I heard Harry Truman talked about and criticized. All I've got to say, thank God one of them's up there, not Lawrence Hicks. If you was up there, what would you do? What would I do? Oh, beloved, the world tottering like a drunken man on the very brinks of eternity and damnation and hell until men in the scientific realm are saying if you could see what we'd see, you'd wake up until men in office are saying, you preachers, you church members, arouse the crowd out there if you can. Us asleep in the world drifting hellward and missionaries begging for help and the foreign nations crying for help and the whole crowd of us asleep at the wheel and not doing anything about it. But in that 24th chapter of Matthew in the 7th verse, I got something else that got me blessed the other day. I read my Bible and found it in my Bible, and it's in yours too. He said, when you hear of these things, when you see these things begin to come to pass, see that you be not troubled. Now, Brother Hicks, how in the world can I live in a hydrogen age with a threat of a hydrogen bomb hanging over me and be not troubled? I'll tell you how, get sanctified holy. And if one explodes, it's a shortcut to heaven. See that you be not troubled, for these things, M-U-S-T, must come to pass. Is that predestination from God that he wills it? No. But God, knowing the devilment and the carnality and the damnation and the pit of hell in the human heart, knew exactly what the case would bring about. Here's a baby with measles. The doctor looks at him and says, well, now he'll run a temperature for two more days, and then he'll break out. He's going to break out with the measles because he's got the germ in him. And the doctor knows that. Not that the doctor wants him to break out. Oh, no. But he, he just knows that actual events will break him out. This world's got the disease germs of carnality in her. And she'll erupt in war, be it between individuals or between nations that must. And the older civilization gets, the worse it's going to get. 
International sign number two, he said there would be perplexity among the nations. Luke 21, 25, that word perplexity simply means twisting and turning and groping and feeling and hunting and seeking and thinking and debating and arguing and feeling and no way out. Every way a blind alley. You knew the answer. You'd be a popular man in America tonight. You knew how to calm Red China down and how to appease Russia and how to pull our fellows in that we've got our lines out to. You'd be in demand tonight. Perplexity. And that crowd in England don't know. Our folk in Washington don't know. The Frenchman doesn't know. The German doesn't know. The Russian doesn't know. The Chinaman doesn't know. The Japanese doesn't know. Nehru in India doesn't know. Perplexity of nations shoveled around by some powerful hand on the checkerboards as if a demonic power is elevating and running things. When you see these things happen, it's right at the door. Sign number two, I've called it the social sign. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 38. How was it in the days of Noah? They were marrying and giving in marriage. Frankly, that has never made sense to me. What does it mean to marry and then give in marriage? I dug around in the Greek with my mouth the other day or some time back and think I unearthed something. The lexicons don't give it that way, and I guess they're a lot smarter than I am. But it kind of fits me. Daddies use the word given in marriage. That's one Greek word. Then he says, uh, uh, there's the word marriage, that's one Greek word. Then he says given in marriage, and that word given in marriage is a compound Greek word. It is the word for marriage plus the little word ek. You spell it in English, ek, ek, ek. And that Greek word ek simply means getting out from among the state you're already in. I believe it ought to be translated marrying and getting out of marriage, and you get this divorce craze we're in today. I barely believe that's it. Now, yeah, that's my opinion. I'm like Brother John. I'm not going to argue with you over that. I'm not upsetting you about it. But, beloved, we are living in an age when marriages are being broken up wholesale, and they tell us it doesn't matter. It does matter. The sanctity of the home is still God's ordination. You'll die and go to hell if you're promiscuous with your marriage. Think you can just marry and pitch a wife off or pitch a husband off and pitch a wife off and pitch a husband off without Bible grounds or any other grounds and marry you will. It is legalized adultery, you think. But I warn you, you shall stand before God one of these days. God help me to be faithful. Then as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 18, 28. How was it in Lot's day? I read it to you. They planted big fields. They built houses. They had a big time. They were getting ready to stay here forever. They weren't aware that their power was coming till they were on fire. Shout and go hoarse and tear your hand, wring your hands and scream and weep. And the world shrugs its little pretty shoulders and says, Oh, well, <laughs> I've heard these things all of my life. It isn't going to happen. And you're building houses. You're getting so tied onto this world. And you're planting farms. And you're getting so tied onto this world that even the church don't want the Redeemer to come back anymore. God have mercy on us. Then there's a home sign, 2 Timothy 3, 2. He said children should be disobedient to parents. You hear juvenile delinquency, juvenile delinquency, juvenile delinquency. In the last days, perilous times shall come. That word in the original Greek, in the last days, hard times shall come. Why will they be hard? Because men were beloved of their own selves, boasters, proud, blasphemers, unholy, and children will be disobedient to parents. 
There seems to be something that grips the boys and girls today that no matter how much you use a rod, they are taught in school things that you and I weren't taught. The home life may be crumbling. I tell you to beware. Then the fourth social sign is the sign of fear. Luke 21, 26, men's hearts failing them for fear. There is a pervasion of fear over everybody tonight. Just everybody's afraid. Nobody's sure about anything. Just everybody's all kind of worked up in the, in the divils, you know, just afraid about something. Afraid of what? They just don't know. Men's hearts failing them for fear. I've wondered if that could be the wave of heart attacks we're having. I've just wondered. I'm not even preaching that. Sign number three, not only have we the international sign of wars and perplexity, the social sign of no lot to home and fear, but there's the religious sign, and God have mercy on us in the church as we look at the church for a moment. Distinctly understood, I'm not fighting the church. I love the church. I have never criticized the church one time from the pulpit that I know about. When I was a Methodist preacher, I endeavored to live by the discipline, and I love the old Methodist church and still do. I didn't leave the Methodist church mad or because I had to. I did it because I felt there was a group of people I could serve. And I loved Brother John and the Methodist church. The Methodist church is my mother. She poured the waters of baptism on me. She, her preachers prayed for me when I was a little boy. She fed me my first bread in a parsonage. She's a grand crowd. I've no criticism to make of her. She's marching heaven with the real churches. There are apostates in all of the churches. I have no criticism to the Nazarenes or anybody else, but I'm saying that now by way of introduction <coughs> to say this about the church generally. thing that's going to mark the church in the latter age will be an awful influx of false doctrines. Matthew 24, 4, he said, See no man deceive you. For many false prophets will have come deceiving many. They are the isms, the Russellites and the unity and the Christian science and all the isms on one side. Then in the established churches, there are the denials of the virgin birth. There are the universalists that have crept into the old churches that used to preach a burning hellfire. Doctrines of falsity are coming in everywhere. Sign number two, in the last days, 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit speaketh expressly, the Holy Ghost speaketh. In the last days, men shall give heed to seducing spirits, not men, but spirits. And doctrines of devils, it says in your King James Version, but the original Greek reads, In the last days men shall give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines suggested by demons. Demonic doctrines. My blood almost ran cold when I read of an account in Canada two or three years ago where a cult had sprung up to worship the devil. And they were preaching that Lucifer and, and, and Jesus were brothers, and Lucifer was the elder brother. And that Jesus had usurped the throne and stolen it from Lucifer. And Lucifer had a right to be mad. And Jesus had made a mess of the world. Now let's turn back to the devil and worship him and let him bring things out. And men who were ordained Christian preachers had left their pulpit, embraced that thing, and begun to preach it. Doctrine suggested by devils. Third thing will be wrong with the church. It will be a formal thing. It's popular to get religion today. Everybody wants to be a church member. Second Timothy, the third chapter, and the third verse said, In those days men should have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. I read Billy Graham said these words, and I think I can quote him verbatim. 
I believe it was in Eternity Magazine, published in Philadelphia by Dr. Barnhouse. I believe it was in that. But anyhow, Billy Graham said we've had an intellectual revival in America, but it hasn't reached the heart life of America. We have. Folk are talking about religion and still committing adultery. Folk are talking about religion and still drinking beer, wine, and liquor. Folk are talking about religion and still it hasn't changed them. You meet most anybody now. Yes, I'm a member of a certain church. Well, I knew of a church that took in a hundred last Easter. And one of the board members was bragging to me and said, Brother Hicks, we had a great time. We took in a hundred. And the Sunday before, that board member had fished all day on Sunday and hadn't darkened the door of the church. A form of godliness, but denying its power. Then he said in Matthew 24, 12, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You wonder why it's so hard to get people established today. The abounding of iniquity, that's it. Pressure, 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 pressure. Everywhere. Then again, I'd call your attention as I hurry on to Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, of the Laodicean church, which is a picture of this age, and the picture of that church is of the Savior on the outside, standing on the outside, knocking, begging the church to turn him back in. Preachers have preached that as an evangelistic message and said it's the Savior knocking on individual sinners. No, it isn't. It's the last church of this age, the one you and I are tangled up with, and the Savior on the outside begging his own bride to let him in while she's lying back in the arms of her lover on the inside, making dates with the world and living away from God. Then the fourth, fifth thing about the church, Matthew 25, 1 to 10, she's asleep. All the ten virgins slumbered and slept. The whole crowd was asleep. We had the Westland revival of the other two centuries when the church got on her tiptoes and almost took the world for Christ. But he got a dose of some kind of lethargy in our veins. We settled down to take it easy. Just a few fanatics like John Church and Tony Anderson and about 150 more across the country are pulling their hair and thundering and crying and preaching and working up a lava and most of the church will get stirred up. You can have a revival in any church in America and 10 days later it's about to go back to sleep on you again. I speak as a pastor. They run to the altar and pray through and go back and pray through and go back and oh my God, I say that reverently. Can't we wake up? Then the next sign, the fourth sign of his coming is the sign of a fig tree, Matthew 24, 32. You see the fig tree begin to bud, you know that someone's right around the door. Most Bible theologians believe that fig tree to be a sign of Israel. When you see Israel begin to go back to a promised land, go back to the land of the fathers, <laughs> go back to the land of Abraham, go back to the land of Isaac and Jacob, get your heads up! The fig trees are budding, there's going to be little figs on it before long, and at the time of the figs, he'll come back. I've been told by folk who are uh, supposed to know that when Israel became a state that night at midnight about the 24th or 5th of May, 1948, that they adopted the ancient fig tree as the emblem of Israel. And when they did that, Israel came into existence as a nation, and the fig tree budded. I want to have a shout and spell sometimes when I think about what God is about to do. Then the next thing, the thing that blesses my heart is it is the blessed hope. I've got my Bible marked up so much, <laughs> but down there in Titus, the second chapter and the 13th verse, he said, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Are you looking for him to come? Have you got your head up? Are you ready for him? I believe that you better be ready. Now, I brought you down to answer that question a sort of while ago that I'm going to answer. Why I believe that we're going to miss the tribulation. Let me give it to you very hurriedly. I believe we're going to miss the tribulation first because he said he hath not appointed us under wrath but under salvation. I believe next he's got going to take us through the tribulation because of the typology that he's tied up in his prophetic message in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, not one drop of water fell on the antediluvian world till Noah and his wife and Ham and his wife and Shem and his wife and Japheth and his wife had all gone in and God had shut the door and then the storm broke. But not one drop of water fell on God's crowd till God got them in. And not one drop of the tribulation judgment will fall till every little blood-washed saint of God's on old Zion and the door shut and we are wafted out of the sky to be forever with the Lord. In Luke 21, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Not one drop of brimstone, not one rock of sulfur, not one blaze of fire touched Sodom until Lot and his wife had left the city. And Lot and the two daughters were safely on the mountain before any fire fell. And beloved, if they are a type of the church, and that's a type of the days of the coming of the Lord, there will not be any of the fires of tribulation. Judgment, blessed be God, until that blood-washed crowd, that little remnant crowd, that blessed little attendant of the bride, that glorious little crowd, that bunch that have prayed to and gotten the glory of God on their soul, and have their garments washed white in the blood of the Lamb, and have their resurrection robes tabled and tailored and made the pit and hung up in the wards of heaven where the moths are not there to eat and the canker and rust can't destroy and the thieves can't molest until they've gotten those ropes on and gathered along that glassy sea mingled with fire and join in the hallelujah anthem to Moses and the Lamb. There are no tribulation judgments for hallelujah. Then the next reason, the fourth reason, I believe that we're going to miss the tribulation in Revelation 3 chapter Chapter 3, verse 22, the last time the church is mentioned in the Bible as an organization in the earth's history is mentioned in Revelation 3rd, chapter 22nd verse, where when he closed the message to the seventh church at Laodicea, he said, he that hath an heir, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And verse 1 of the chapter 4 said, And I beheld a little door open in heaven and heard a voice saying unto me, Come up higher. And up through that little door he went and out of the whole thing. And blessed be God, I believe there's your rapture. Verse 1 of Revelation 4. After the church age has closed. Glory be to God. You notice a little hole? Now I'm going to take a big one. Great is the gate and narrow is the way that leads unto life. But the gates of hell have enlarged themselves and opened the mouth and that without measure. For broad is the way and wide is the gate that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Oh, I wish now if I just had time I could get back a little bit in those seven churches and show you that's all the church age, but you forget that now and come on here. Then the next thing, I'm about through the joys of the millennium. If you want to have a running spell and get blessed and turn hand springs in the air spiritually, you read the 11th chapter of Isaiah, then turn over and read the 35th chapter of Isaiah, and you will have one running fit after the other. He said, in that day. Oh, Isaiah used to love to use that term, in that day. <laughs> in that day, I 
can see it through my telescope away down yonder. In that day, the bear and the ox, and the bear and the leopard, and the lion and the ox will all frolic and play around together. And the ox and the lion will each crawl together. And the little child toddle out and play on the den of an ass to not get bitten. Glory be to God. I'm telling you, it's going to be a time, isn't it? I love cats. I stood in the zoo at St. Louis and in the zoo at Cincinnati and in the zoo at Memphis and looked at the big cats, you know, lying back, those big old bingo tigers with their stripes around them, big pretty things, and lie back lazy and stretch around those old long, lacy-looking tails, you know, prettiest thing I've ever seen. When I was a little boy, I could take a tomcat and rub his back and hear some whirl on the inside of him, you know, when he'd get his stomach full of milk and I'd stroke him down, I'd scratch his head and he'd purr and twist around. And you know, in the millennium breaks, maybe the Lord will give me a big tiger that'll forget how to play, bite, and let me stroke his back and scratch his head and let him turn over and purr. What a time that's going to be. Hallelujah. Then he got over in the 35th chapter of Isaiah, and he said the desert place down yonder is going to blossom like the rose. He said the solitary place where the hooting of the owl and the whirl of the wing of the bat's been heard will break forth into singing, and their streams break out in the dry ground. God Almighty is going to get ready. He said, I'll stretch a highway up through there. I'll nail signboards upon it that read holiness under the Lord. So many miles to Jerusalem, holiness under the Lord. So many miles to Jerusalem, holiness under the Lord. I'll engrave on every pot and every pan and every kitchen in Jerusalem, holiness under the Lord. I'll hang on the bridle bits of the horses, holiness under the Lord. And since there are not many horses, I wonder if the license plates on the jalopies won't read holiness under the Lord. And they'll say he's a child of the millennium, clear the road, holiness under the Lord. Holiness under the Lord, holiness under the Lord, be our king forevermore. Oh, blessed God. But now I must come to a somber, serious note. Wonderful shout about it, but the difficulty is we aren't ready. You remember me reading that strange account in the Song of Solomon that you didn't know where I was heading when I read it? Picture there of a bridegroom knocking and a bride opening the door. And when she did open the door, the bridegroom was gone. And that verse long about the sixth verse said, while he kept knocking, my hands dripped with sweet myrrh. She thought she wasn't ready to it for him. She had to pretty herself up a little bit. She had indulged in a little of her toilet yet, and when she did go, he was gone. Our modern church with her planning, her committee work, her getting ready to stay here forever, the pressure on, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming, heart's burning, but yet got to do a little bit dressing up, a little bit of dressing up, and she went to the door and said, my beloved, and he didn't answer. She ran out in the streets and said, You watchman on the wall, have you seen my lover? And they said, Take your veil off. You are no longer a bride. Shrugged her around. You're going to miss it if you don't watch out. You better not get so tangled up with the earthy. You better get on the stretch to get second blessing holiness out. <laughs> Matthew 25, 10, those, those, those foolish virgins ran over here and got oil of some kind, I don't know what, and they came back fully expecting to get in. And they said, open unto us. And he said, I don't know who you are. 
Wouldn't it be awful to do that and find the door shut? You could miss it. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. As it has been passed, I don't